Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 165, The End of an Era. Now, because I recorded the last episode yesterday, there are no new patrons, but as always, huge thank you to everyone who contributes to the podcast. You all, I don't know, you, you make me feel inspired uh, to, to put extra work into it, and you allow me to buy all the expensive niche history books I want. So thank you all so much. And let's get into it. Last time, I tried to clarify my thoughts on Macedonian identity as well as diving into the Stoilov government's continued persecution of Stefan Stambolov, Macedonian revolutionaries in Bulgaria resolving their differences and deciding to begin uprisings with secret government support, and Prince Ferdinand beginning the process of using the new Tsar of Russia to reconcile relations between the two countries. Now, all this brings us to early summer 1895. Stambolov was growing more and more frustrated with the government's policy of reconciliation with Russia and its hostile demands towards the Ottomans, leading him to write an article in the newspaper Svoboda arguing against this approach. Once again, Macedonian radicals were furious, labeling him a traitor. The pro-government newspaper Mir responded by writing about tearing Stambolov's flesh from his bones. The irony was really that Stambolov wanted the exact same thing they wanted, but he just thought a different approach was best to get there. But, you know, still, I just find that ironic. All the, you know, labeling him a traitor and everything when he's literally just proposing an alternate route to get to the same end that they want to get to. But, you know, revolutionary organizations and their members aren't exactly known for being super level-headed and reasonable. So there you go. Just two days after that threat was issued in the newspaper Mir, things finally came to a head. On the evening of the 3rd of July, Stambolov was at the Union Club, a popular spot for officers and officials to relax. Perry writes describing the scene, quote, There were a handful of men around. A few were reading papers, others were sipping vermouth or drinking Bavarian beer, some playing cards or chess. Stambolov, now a regular figure there, was popular if not always agreed with. That evening, he sat in the garden for a time. It was still daylight. Before leaving, Stambolov dropped over to the chess game between Mach, an officer of the general staff, Lieutenant Colonel Ilya Dimitrov. Stambolov said to Mach, who was writing a piece about Macedonia for the Kolnische Zeitung, How goes it with your Macedonians? Poorly, eh? They joked, and Stambolov made a remark about idle military officers needing a reason to shed blood. End quote. After this, Stambolov left the club with his friend and fellow politician, Dmitry Petkov, a little before 8 p.m. and made their way together to Stambolov's home. They got into a carriage whose driver was in on the plot and made their way down Rokovsky Street. Soon, Stambolov's bodyguard reported seeing a police officer give a signal. Suddenly, five men emerged from two different side streets. Three approached the carriage and began shooting at the bodyguard, who returned fire. Stambolov shouted, We are lost! while he and Petkov attempted to exit the carriage. 
Petkoth fell as he exited because, well, he had lost an arm at the Battle of Sheepgun, and so he wasn't able to move as quickly out of the carriage as Stambolov. Soon, Petkov and Stambolov's bodyguard realized that Stambolov had managed to exit the carriage and run back towards the club, but he had been intercepted by three of the assailants who already had him on the ground and were ruthlessly stabbing him with knives, and a kind of scimitar, apparently. The bodyguard rushed in the direction of the assailants, firing his revolver, successfully scaring them off. Soon, the men inside the Union Club, as well as some locals, poked their heads out to see what all the commotion was, and found Stumbleoff lying on the ground, covered in blood. He had been stabbed 23 times. His right eye had been taken out of its socket, and three fingers removed. He was taken to his home, and immediately attended by a team of doctors who had to cut off his hands in a desperate attempt to save his life. In his last hours, he asked for the bandages to be removed from his eyes so he could see his wife one last time. You can see a photo of the dead Stambolov lying in his home on the blog post linked in the episode description. All of the murderers and their accomplices escaped, while Stambolov died of his wounds two days later. So, it finally happened. Stambolov's political enemies had finally killed him. Ironically, in precisely the manner that he had predicted. Although he had made many political enemies through his authoritarian tactics, ultimately it seems that his belief that the best way to obtain Macedonian autonomy and eventual union with Bulgaria was by working with the Ottoman government was enough to sign his death warrant. When news of the assassination broke, Macedonian revolutionaries, socialists, and all Stambolov's enemies rejoiced. Flyers were distributed throughout the city loudly proclaiming, The tyrant is dead! The reaction from Europe, however, was quite different. Telegrams poured in expressing sympathy and horror. Stambolov's wife received telegrams from Queen Victoria and Emperor Franz Joseph. Prince Ferdinand sent a wreath, but it was sent back, with his widow commenting that his, the hands which lay next to his body were the same hands that had placed the crown on Ferdinand's head. All that is to say, Stambolov's family had no interest in the sympathy of Ferdinand by this point. In fact, much of the international press blamed Russia for the murder, and no surprise considering how many failed assassination attempts they had under their belts, while also placing blame on Ferdinand and the Stoilov government. Historians still debate Ferdinand's personal level of responsibility, but Perry concludes that considering the prince, prince's very strong distaste for violence, I mean, he hated even signing death warrants, and Stambolov eventually managed to convince him to do this a few times, but yeah, he, he hated wounds, he hated blood, he hated the thought of anyone dying, even if the person had been convicted in a trial. So I, I agree with Perry, it's unlikely that Ferdinand was directly involved, but he did seem to kind of allow this murder to proceed through his own inaction. Richard von Mach, that German friend of Stambolov's described in the scene before his death, wrote about the scene before Stambolov's funeral, saying, quote, It is an ugly custom to dress up a corpse as if for a ball. The yellowy-white face stands out in harsh and discordant contrast to the black clothes. For this special journey, which no one undertakes twice, only special clothing is fitting. A winding sheet is the correct attire for the wanderer's last journey. 
Stambolov's corpse is clothed in a dress coat. The wounds on the hand are visible. The narrow reddish lines on the temple above the right eye, above the nose, thin as the back of a knife blade and yet deadly. The expression of the face is calm and peaceful. The sleeves of the dress coat over the stumps of the arms whose white bandages can be seen. An icon rests between the arms. The feet are in a patent leather pumps, wrapped in a strip of white tulle. On the table besides the corpse is a glass bowl. It contains the lacerated, deformed hands which once guided the destiny of Bulgaria. Like discarded gloves, they float in alcohol. Sunrays play tremulously over the ghastly relics. The room smells of iodoform and flowers. The coffin, tables, and chairs are covered with wreaths bearing inscriptions which commemorate the dead man as a great patriot, a brave statesman, and the founder of Bulgaria's independence. End quote. The funeral was attended by about 200 friends and diplomats from all the major European nation, nations, minus Belgium for some reason. However, the funeral proceedings were repeatedly interrupted by anti-Stambolov crowds shouting insults. The funeral procession was eventually broken up by mounted police, leading to Queen Victoria's representative walking over to Stoilov's home and telling him off for allowing this to happen. It took no time at all for Stambolov's gravesite to be desecrated, with men even dancing a horo on it. And within a year, it was actually just bombed. One group even tried to dig up the corpse and hang it from gallows, but were stopped by police. So, that finally ends the story of Stefan Stambolov. Dead at just 41 years old, which, even for me covering him, I, I was kind of shocked to realize that he was only 41. I mean... It seems like the guy has had a, this long storied political career, right? He's been uh, prime minister. He basically led Bulgaria for seven years and he's just 41. I mean, it feels like ages ago when he was just 20 years old, but, or when he was, yeah, uh, just about 20. And it was actually only 20 years earlier that he had been an active participant in the internal revolutionary organi organization, an active participant in the April uprising, and as they said at his funeral, indeed one of the people who really shaped modern Bulgaria in its early years. Perry's biography of Stambolov states simply that he was, quote, a man of violent character who lived in stormy times, end quote, before arguing that, quote, neither a Democrat nor an altruist, Stambolov looked after his own and survived by using a system of favoritism in a land devoid of democratic traditions. But it was not a blindly brutal system where millions or even thousands perished, as in more recent examples of dictatorial regimes like those of Stalin, Hitler, or Pol Pot. Stambolov used the forces of order selectively, and his approach brought relative calm. It also produced better educated people whose sentiments lay in more democratic channels. End quote. Stambolov himself once said, quote, the great reproach brought against me has always been that I used my power unconstitutionally and arbitrarily. I admit this fully. I used pu publicly to say in the chamber that I intended to proceed by some necessary measure, not provided for in the Constitution, but justified by the circumstances of the case. But all my arbitrary acts were performed for the good of the country, and generally in the face of some great national danger. End quote. Now, of course, there's some rationalization after the fact there, but 
We can't deny the reality that Stoiloff and company loudly denounced Thumbeloff's tactics before immediately deciding that they were necessary upon taking power. Perry points out that, quote, the big difference was that Stoiloff supported Ferdinand's ambition regarding recognition at any cost. Stumbleoff did not. Stoiloff was willing to make political compromises for short-term political ends, while Stumbleoff generally employed a longer vision. Their respective policies on Macedonia stand out as the greatest contrast. End quote. He goes on to describe that approach, writing, quote, as a, as a Bulgarian nationalist, Stumbleoff supported acquiring Thrace and Macedonia. As early as the period of the Congress of Berlin, Stambulov, with the aid of Bishop Natal, conducted a peaceful propaganda campaign in the Macedonian Vilayets. As prime minister, he was successful in penetrating Macedonia with Bulgarian schools and churches, which subtly served to instill a Bulgarian national consciousness without a single bellicose utterance. His plan was simple. Through the proliferation of Bulgarian exarchist churches and the schools that were usually founded along with them, the population of Macedonia would in due course adopt a Bulgarian national consciousness. When this occurred, arguments for union could be as strongly made as they had been with Eastern Rumelia. Cooperation with the Ottomans was a means to this end. It was Stambolov's view that violent methods and revolutionary activity would avail Bulgaria of little or nothing positive vis-a-vis -vis Macedonia, which he hoped Bulgaria would eventually annex. Rather, gradual penetration, using education and religion as a vehicle for disseminating Bulgarian national consciousness, was the most effective means to bring about the eventual union with Macedonia and Bulgaria. His approach was logical enough, but it was too slow for the tastes of the hot-headed Macedonian revolutionaries. As a result, when Stambolov blocked the incendiary work of the revolutionaries, it forced them to go underground. They, in turn, seethed and plotted against him. Now, I quoted that whole section because I feel it's a pretty good summary of the issue. It should come no surprise that based on my understanding of how nation building and identity function, I really think Stambolov's approach was the better one. But in our story, well, let's say time will tell. But in any case, yeah, I think Perry does a good job there of really laying out what the differences were in these approaches. And as I'll, you know, I mentioned before and I'll mention again, so many of the debates and discussions over how Bulgaria should sort of obtain Macedonia or unify with Macedonia are very similar to the questions of how Bulgaria should obtain independence from the Ottomans decades earlier. And, well, as we saw, like the uprisings that were led against the Ottomans in Bulgaria before didn't really do a lot. They didn't seem to work very well. Though, importantly, there were differences. You know, if you look at Bulgaria under the Ottoman Empire, you know, the Bulgarians there already had a fairly well-developed national consciousness. You know, there, there weren't sort of competing people, you know, other countries trying to argue that the Bulgarians living in Bulgaria within the Ottoman Empire were actually members of different nations and things. So that is one key difference between that kind of series of events and those in Macedonia. So in Macedonia, there's also the question of, are you provoking, right? As we'll see later, if are you trying... Are the actions that Bulgaria is taking in Macedonia going to provoke, say, Greece and Serbia to get more involved? But anyways, now with Stambolov gone, Ferdinand was the true master of Bulgaria. 
Now, yeah, Stoilov was legally in charge of the government, but he had nothing approaching Stambulov's level of power and influence. Still, despite that power, Ferdinand was still, well, somewhat politically vulnerable. And he actually decided to remain in Karlsbad and wait for everything to blow over, acutely aware at how many people blamed him for the assassination of Stambulov. Indeed, Ferdinand's call for the killers to be caught and punished, well, he did that, but uh, not much happened as a result. The few men connected with the assassinations who were caught were lightly punished. Two of them received three-year prison sentence sentences, while another was just found not guilty. Yet, even those mild p- prison sentences elicited outrage but amongst many who felt that these murderers were patriots. Years later, another person connected with the assassination was caught and sentenced to death before ultimately the sentence was reduced to a jail of 15 years. Most felt that the authorities must have promised them light punishments, and we do have records of that, but it's also just possible that no one involved in the prosecutions wanted to get on the bad side of the Macedonian revolutionaries behind them because, well, as we're seeing more and more, those Macedonian revolutionaries are getting quite good at assassinations and bombings and things, so... Yeah, it's it's a little bit like uh, trying to you know someone trying to prosecute the mafia in the U.S. in the mid 20th century. It's not the best idea, and the, you, you can understand why people are hesitant to do it. Now, one of the ironies of Stambulov's death, and actually one of the reasons for it, was that it came just as a Bulgarian delegation was in Saint Petersburg negotiating the terms for reconciliation between Russia and Bulgaria. Remember, the reason Ferdinand would not allow Stambulov to leave Bulgaria was a fear that he would undermine these efforts. Well, at least that paid off because a deal was finally reached. If Crown Prince Boris converted to Orthodoxy, remember him being raised Catholic was a requirement for Ferdinand to marry his wife, then Russia would recognize both Prince Ferdinand and Bulgaria's unification with Eastern Rumelia, in addition to just generally normalizing relations. This would then open the floodgates for other European powers to do the same. Ferdinand had been aware of this condition for some time, but initially felt the price was too high. Now, though, he was in a difficult position because pressure was mounting internally within Bulgaria to get reconciliation done. One Sofia newspaper's commentary showed what that pressure looked like, writing, quote, It is now quite clear that His Royal Highness the Prince is the obstacle in the way to a solution. There remains nothing else for us to do but ask him, in all sincerity, to leave the country, so that we can do our duty to escape demoralization and destruction. For this reason, we again urge our ruling politicians to enlighten the Prince about the true state of things and ask him to bid us farewell and not to wait until he is assassinated like Stambulov. Since, were this to happen, no greater misfortune could befall Bulgaria, end quote. So, yeah, pretty clear. Like, they're, they're telling Ferdinand that he should basically abdicate and leave, and saying that otherwise he risks assassination. So, again, Ferdinand now is definitely the premier political power in Bulgaria, but he's also quite vulnerable in a lot of ways, and that newspaper article shows why. Stoilov himself urged Ferdinand to agree to the conversion, but the prince was stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, the Bulgarian public, the Bulgarian government, and his own deep desire for recognition all pushed him towards agreeing. But on the other hand, the Pope, his wife, his mother, and his entire 
deeply Catholic family were all absolutely dead set against it. Again, remember, Ferdinand's family, they're not just regular Catholics. They are diehard Catholics. His wife's godfather is the Pope himself, and she at this moment is already pregnant with their second child, and she just could not be more against the conversion. And again, remember, technically, the children being raised Catholic was a requirement, a written legal requirement for Ferdinand's marriage. Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria was also very angry at this prospect. He saw Bulgaria as a firm Austro-Hungarian ally, and so both as a Catholic and just, you know, as the leader of Austria-Hungary, he did not want to see the conversion or reconciliation with Russia, which was his political enemy in the Balkans at this point. Ferdinand himself actually seemed to be okay with the idea of his son converting. Well, basically his desire to be a formally recognized ruler overran any particular religious considerations. Though, again, you know, he was a serious Catholic, but still, his, that, that, that wish to be uh, recognized seemed to override that. There was also the reality that Ferdinand by this point was already enjoying imagining one day being crowned emperor in Constantinople, and thus he thought he might one day actually be able or willing to reconcile the Eastern and Western churches. You know, you can't say he didn't dream big. So, Ferdinand spent the summer of 1895 trying to build support in his family for the conversion, but only really managed to convince his mother. The most difficult opposition for him remained his pregnant wife. Unfortunately for him, Marie Louise was hardly in a flexible or forgiving mood at this point. She felt deeply disillusioned after learning shortly shortly after their wedding that Ferdinand had had and really continued to have many affairs. Indeed, Constant points out that Ferdinand somehow became even less discreet about them after getting married. By the fall, Ferdinand was hinting that he would accept the conversion as soon as he could overcome unnamed obstacles. So, yeah, he was trying to buy himself time. Then, on the 6th of November, his second son, Prince Cyril of Preslav, was born. Having another son certainly helped secure his dynasty, but it also presented Ferdinand with a new dilemma. Should Cyril be baptized Catholic or Orthodox? It was decided that making him Catholic might make it easier to get his wife to accept Boris's conversion, but it actually just really increased public and political pressure within Bulgaria. Soon, the government of Stoilov issued an ultimatum. See Boris converted, or they would resign. Early in 1896, Ferdinand met with the Pope at the Vatican personally to request permission for the conversion. He was met with an icy stare and the words, quote, You wish that I should sanction your son's death, the death of his soul? It would be spiritual murder, end quote. Ferdinand explained why it was so important before being interrupted with the Pope stating, quote, Prince, it is your own fault that things have reached this stage. If you had acted as a good Catholic a year ago and had answered in the negative when you were asked if your son would go over to the Bulgarian church, the difficulties would not have grown quite so big. At the time, you did not speak with the firmness of a Catholic, end quote. The Pope went on to suggest Ferdinand abdicate. When the prince begged the pontiff to at least spare him excommunication, he answered, quote, If you deliver your son Boris into schism, you are excommunicate ipso facto, end quote. Unfortunately, Ferdinand left the Otis without the Pope's blessing, as should be clear. 
In early February, technically three days after the ultimatum for the government's resignation had passed, Ferdinand finally made his decision. He announced that his son would convert to orthodoxy, stating bitterly that, quote, as I failed to find a judicious understanding of Bulgaria's needs in those quarters where I had expected it, I have resolved, faithful to the oath that I swore to my beloved people, and on my own initiative, to remove all obstacles and to offer on the altar of our motherland this heavy and inestimable sacrifice. End quote. Within days, Tsar Nicholas II sent a diplomatic delegation, restarting formal ties for the first time in nearly a decade. The Tsar himself was made young Boris's godfather, replacing the Pope. So he's got he's, he's certainly got powerful godfathers, at least. Also, within days, Ferdinand was formally recognized by all the European powers. Just like that, the dam had broken, and Ferdinand obtained the recognition he had so desperately wanted from the first days of his reign. Now, Princess Marie Louise left with her newborn son for the south of France just to get away from everything, horrified by the thought of her son's conversion. Ferdinand himself was excommunicated, but in a, a kind of milder way. There's, I guess, different levels of excommunication. Uh, and so, yeah, the Pope feared that if he used the strongest form of excommunication, it would push Ferdinand towards just outright converting to orthodoxy. So, yeah, he, he tried to play a balance here. So Ferdinand was still allowed to attend Mass, but he was denied communion. Overall, Ferdinand felt deeply betrayed by his family and the broader Western European world, who had, he felt had offered him no real support in this difficult decision and did not seem to appreciate the position that he was in. Ferdinand said himself, quote, What I have done was imposed on me by my duty towards my beloved people, who, a decade ago, trustingly put their fate in my hands. The sacrifice I have made for the fatherland is so great, so cruel, so terribly harrowing, that history has no equal to it. For Bulgaria's happiness and prosperity, I have pledged my own son, and by doing so loosened the bands of my family and torn the ties which bound me to the West. In return, I do not ask my beloved people for noisy ovations or for hypocritical homage, but merely for their respect and confidence in me." End quote. So, Bulgaria now has an orthodox heir to the throne. His ties to the West may be weakened, but Ferdinand has never been stronger or more secure within Bulgaria. The Bulgarian public delighted in his decision, and he now had the recognition, popular backing, and two sons. Now, before I wrap up this episode and season seven, I need to mention the other major event which occurred during the summer of 1895 while Ferdinand was building support for his son's conversion. At that time, several armed bands, manned by a combination of brigands, but largely led by Bulgarian officers and armed with weapons from the Bulgarian army, entered Macedonia. Around 800 men were involved, and upon entering the territory, they attacked many Muslims, often setting their homes on fire, before ultimately withdrawing back into Bulgaria. The cruel irony here was that this mostly brought harsh reprisals on the locals, who, to quote Perry, had, quote, neither invited nor supported the bands, end quote. The harshest reprisals were in Melnik, where 600 locals were forced to flee in the face of brutal Ottoman reprisals. Ultimately, this incursion inspired no uprising, no conversions, no recruitment, 
Instead, it merely sparked angry backlash in Serbia and Greece, pushing both countries to increase their activities in Macedonia. The great powers of Europe were also quite unhappy with the violence Bulgaria was now stoking next door. Obviously, the Ottomans were furious, and instead of these incursions pushing them towards reforms, as many had hoped, it merely hardened their stance and pushed them to employ more brutal, irregular soldiers, bringing yet harsher repressions on the people of Macedonia. Also, importantly, this action was conducted by the supremacists in Sofia without telling the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization as they had so recently promised to do. Indeed, the Ottoman backlash made it even more difficult for the MRO to act in Macedonia, so really hampering their efforts. Thus, in my eyes, these Cheta bands showed the wisdom of Stambolov's approach. Violence was turning everyday Macedonians and governments around Europe alike against Bulgaria. It was pushing Serbia and Greece to work even harder to fight for their claims on the territory. While Stambolov's methodical approach gradually won hearts and minds while avoiding unwanted backlash or international attention, the approach of the supremacists very clearly did the opposite. People are more likely to advocate for Bulgaria when Sofia sends them teachers, priests, aid, builds schools, and generally you know, makes their development better. They're far less likely to identify with Sofia when it sends guerrilla bands, which cause local Ottoman irregulars to murder and oppress with impunity. Unfortunately, though, this is just the beginning of such violence in Macedonia. And on that sad note, I'll finish this season. We're roughly at the end of 1895 and the beginning of 1896, and Bulgaria is looking more like a regular European country than ever, minus still technically being under Ottoman sovereignty. But at the same time, the status, that status as a kind of regular European state is being undermined by the assassination of Stambolov and the funding of Macedonian guerrilla bands. Next time, we'll have the usual episodes summarizing the season before we dive into season eight, which, from what I can tell, my rough plan will cover the period from Ferdinand's recognition, i.e. now, to about the beginning of the Balkan Wars. So, as always, make sure you are subscribed and don't miss out, because that's going to be a fascinating time period to cover. So, that's it for this season. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the links in the description for info about the Patreon and about you know more info and more images and all that stuff for this episode. And that's it for now.